Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Lee Burton with Naturalist Studies, and we have another podcast episode. This time I have the pleasure of having in studio Chris Hyde. He is the owner and the founder of Natureversity, based here in Austin, Texas. So thank you for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. I love chatting with more nature nerds and uh, hearing all their stories. So I'm excited to pick your brain, too. And uh this goes both ways. Well, thanks for being here. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Chris, is obviously uh, my business and uh, trying to get people more involved in and connected to nature and the whole idea of being a naturalist. And someone like yourself, I think, is about as good an example of that as you can get. Um, you know, very well-rounded, very diverse skill set. So if you don't mind just kind of rehashing um, your upbringing, how you got into this, you know, the things that really appeal to you, you know, your core skills and, and you know, what motivates you today. Yeah. I like <clears throat> that you're calling it naturalist, first of all. Sorry, side bit here. Um, here's why. Because so many survival schools, or I should say outdoor schools, wilderness education schools, they have that demeanor of like survival like slash and grab bushcraft and I like that you went naturalist here's why because if you were to say all right Chris you're gonna bet on this naturalist and the survivalist and who's gonna survive longer I'd probably pick the naturalist and the reason why is because the naturalist doesn't have to know how to build forts right the naturalist knows where the deer go when it's wet and cold and raining right and so I always defer to the people who have a connection with the land-based first versus the people who popped open a book and went and tried to do the slash and grab survival, chop down trees, make forts thing. So thank you for calling it naturalist studies because I think that's so astute and so much more appropriate to what we're actually trying to do as environmentalists, as educators, as bioremediation facilitators. Um, so how I got started in all this was I grew up in, I was born in San Antonio, Texas. I grew up in Austin, but I did have a little stint in Savannah, Georgia, Corpus Christi, a few other places, Florida. And during those times, I was outside all the time. And the beach was just so much heaven. It was like fishing and, you know, catching whatever I could find out there. Seashells, collections, all that. So I knew from a very early age, because my grandparents, uh, they would, you know, basically say, hey, like, you know, go outside and play. And I did. And then as I got older, I realized... Um, as in middle school and high school that like I wasn't the cool kid, you know, cause like I was like into nature and stuff like that. But then I quickly dropped all that. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be cool and listen to Marilyn Manson and corn and all skateboards. And I did all that, but I felt, so you were an urban survivalist I, for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like street, street kid. And, uh, I felt disconnected and I, and it wasn't just because of like school or lack of, you know, quality friends or mom or dad or anything. Like I legitimately felt like this yearning of go live like a native, go live like a person who's indigenous or something. And I just wanted that so bad. And um, funnily enough, during high school, I got uh, Dr. Gary Wells. He was a uh, economics professor of mine. And we talked a lot of conspiracies. So I got into conspiracies big time. And I remember... A uh, friend of mine, Harlan, <clears throat> and another friend of mine, John Bush, they organized this bookstore called Brave New Books in downtown Austin off the drag. And 
they were doing a you know new grand opening and I brought like dozens of boxes of books like this box like as big as this box next to me filled with books but on my way out they had this little survival section and I was mm. like hey Harlan I was like I better take this book and it was the book Grandfather oh, wow. by Tom Brown and I don't know why but I read that back of that book and I was like I'm taking this one book I just gave you 500 I'm gonna take this one and I went home and I just absorbed that book and I knew right then and there that's what was missing. Wow. That so you could have gone the Alex Jones route. I could have. Austin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved you, Alex you found Jones Tom back Brown. in the day. Yeah, I did. <laughs> okay. David Icke and all those guys. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but I felt that was like, I don't want to say rabble rousing, but it was very like, it was very divisive in a way. And I know that when I started learning these survival skills, when I, when I got done reading Grandfather and I went to... Um, tracker school up in Jersey and I met Tom and I met all these people I realized like this is what I want to do and so I started hoarding knowledge and gaining all these skills and then I was like I'm gonna live on my own and that was the epiphany I you know had a little bit of a vision quest moment uh, sat in the woods for a few days and how and long really, ago was this um <clears throat> roughly 2012 okay Somewhere about in there. 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. so 2010 is when I first went to tracker school. And then 2012 is when I started down this path of like helping people reconnect. But I was out in California, and I decided that I just wasn't going to come back to the world. I, I read, read a lot of those Derek Jensen books. I don't know if you know that guy. He's like wrote in language older than words and a couple books like that. But I really resonated with his philosophy of connecting with the earth but during that little moment of the vision quest i had an epiphany of wait a second this is not right these skills all that you've learned this was only for one thing uniting communities and here you are hoarding this knowledge extracting it out of these places where you gained it and now you're you know secluding yourself into the woods and i just i, I couldn't do it i'm really glad you brought that <clears throat> up because and and one of the reasons i started naturalist studies was this isn't the domain of any one ethnic group or culture no. or, you know, it's all of humanity, right? It's We're our, all born of the earth. Yeah. Everybody, you know, whatever point you want to go back, at right. some point your ancestors <laughs> were hunter-gatherers, hunter -gatherers, right? That's right. And so it's it's all in our DNA. And, and just one comment earlier, what you said, I really like the name naturalist too. And part of the reason I stumbled on that was... Um, some of the John Young, his early recordings, and of course he was, you know, uh, probably the foremost student of Tom Brown and then yeah. formed Wilderness Awareness School and all these other spinoffs. That's something that, you know, he used and, and not only used, he recognized the value of it. And, and as I started thinking about that more, it's so true. It's, you know, all the natives, indigenous people were naturalists because yeah. you had to be, Master you know, you, yeah, you had to know. I mean, I take, I just taught, uh, took my daughter down to the Creek a few days ago. I take her down there a bunch and you know, we found a walnut, fell off a tree, took it back home, and I had a little piece of wood that was carved she was using for, like, a spatula. And I was like, well, let's peel the fruit off here and, you know, made this amazing stain on, on Yeah, it was, it was beautiful, right? And, and, you know, I mean, that's just, we did it for fun. I wanted to teach her. But, you know, they had to do that for survival, right? Mm -hmm. They needed, you know, to know skills like that and, and everything. And then as I got older and, like, the early here Texans who came over and, and documented the landscape here um, and— 
you know, you just start reading about him. And I lived in China for two years, and there was a famous Austrian-American named Joseph Rock. And, you know, he collected all these amazing plants, which so many of them, the azaleas and the rhododendrons, come from there in southwest yeah. China, Himalayan China. And so, yeah, it just encompasses everything. So, anyway, I, I'm really glad to hear you say that and kind of that appealed to you as well. Yeah, it does. Naturalism is just... It, like you said, there's no way to get away from it. You cannot, one of the old things that uh, one of my teachers said I thought was really hysterical is he's like, you can't live in a parking lot. You no, just can't. No. It's, it's impossible. And um, <clears throat> like you said, it's we're all needing these resources. And I think there, therein lies the desire for that connection. So like you said, you said you pulled this, you know, uh, walnut shell off and you used it as a stain. But think about that. Like, for just a moment, if we're talking about hunter-gatherers here, we're talking about the desire to have your meads net while not also expending all your energy. But that's weird because what is that walnut stain? How is that resupplying your energy? It's not. But there's a deeper level there. That's what I think is that's what makes us human is the ability to like, mm. knowingly actively attempt to leave a legacy. You know, they, they walked miles for cave painting materials. They're not bringing back food and stuff. They, maybe they were. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I'm just assuming that these cave paintings and these etchings and all that stuff, they wanted to tell their story. And the other day we were having a conversation. Or if you go like the Galt site, which is yeah. dating back to 20,000 years ago, they have, I, I can't remember the exact technical term or archaeological term, but they call them uh, show-off points. You know, oh. it's like this arrowhead is like, it's not functional. I mean, it oh. would break off chip here. Someone had some extra time. So, yeah, they you're exactly were, right. Yeah, you know? getting eccentric. Or, yeah, or the Chauvet Caves in France like 35,000 years ago, and they look oh, like yeah. Monet paintings. You that know, blows my mind. Yeah. What was that lady's name? Gina Yule. She wrote a whole book about that, yeah. like Land of the Cave Bear, yeah. Land of the Cave Bear. Um, yeah, so I feel like we need connections now more than ever because of obviously everything going on culturally around the world it is a div massive amount of division but you can't i feel you can't begin to know like true connections until you know connections with things you know that that aren't going to serve you like i don't know i don't want to say that in a derogatory sense but serve you in the perception that you may have via your culture so a tree right you yes they give us oxygen they may give us food they may give us things but think about it like this if you come home and you've got a dog at home and you open that door what's that dog doing it's demanding your attention left and right and you got to give it you got to acknowledge it because it's not going to stop until you acknowledge it just imagine if trees and plants did that to us when we walked out our front door we would know them all very well because they're demanding our attention. So we have to be the active force that goes out there and demands, you know, their attention, I guess. Or let me just tell you how much I honor you by this stain that you're giving me or this nut, this protein, this bark, this beautiful wood, this bow potentially that can then go harvest more uh, sustenance for myself and enrich my life. So I want people to stem from the naturalist via the route of making deeper connections. And I love what John Young said. Maybe it was John Young. I don't know. who They talked about in Africa, there were people who kind of surmised life as though there was threads connecting them to everything. And when you were born, it was like this tiny little meager thread of connection to maybe the tree or the plant or the animal. But as you grew up, that thread became like a rope. And as you got older and into your elderhood, it became like an unbreakable chain. 
And think about the chains that people have. And when you walk around, like, look, look at someone who cares what they, who they are or whatever. Just look at them. And then improve your mind. Like, wonder, what are their tethers? What are their chains? It's, it's probably this phone right here, right? Or, or a car or a bank account or, you know, whatever is making up your identity. But is it really with the moon phase right now? Right, where, which direction you're looking, um, what season, you know, are are blackberries in? Like anything, I don't mm. know. There's just more. It feels I feel more human by knowing those things. I guess what I'm trying to say. No, I think that's great. My favorite example of that is um, a story by Klaus Zuberbuehler, uh, and it's called the, uh, or I've nicknamed it anyway, <clears throat> the Eleventh Primate, and he was doing some. Uh, he's um, anthropologist of some sort, I believe. He's a University of uh, Scotland and uh, in Edinburgh. Anyway, he was doing research. I think it was in Ivory Coast or uh, somewhere over in one of the rainforest countries in Africa and hearing, uh, studying calls from certain leopards. And I won't blow the story, but anyway, at the end of it, he has this epiphany moment. And what he realized was uh, when he was able to start interpreting these is that Humans are, even today, even if you're just out walking the pavement, like where we are here in downtown Austin, you're in relationship to these things. You may not know it, yeah, but you are. You're just not aware of it. And right. when you become aware of it, and that's what you're saying, is that it's just, it's a game changer, you know? Um, and again, it's in our DNA. So just getting back to the Tom Brown thing, when did you, I know you're, a, you're an excellent tracker and you have the highest level of cyber tracker certification, you're a specialist. How did you get into specific skill sets like tracking and, and wilderness survival? Where did you learn those, and how did that come about? I, <clears throat> when I got to tracker school, uh, it was all about survival. And then in the third week um, was this class called Advanced Tracking and Awareness. This is at Tom Brown's yeah, school. Yeah, right? up in Jersey. Yeah. And that class kind of like, it gave me an understanding and kind of a pseudo perception of what tracking was, but I really didn't like get into tracking until I got uh, to Dave, to, uh, Dave Scott with Earth Native. I didn't um, really like understand until I started studying uh, what Louis Liebenberg was doing, what uh, Paul Resendez was doing, what Mark Elbrock was doing. That's when I started realizing, okay, this is like science tracking. Because some of the things that Tom would do, I'll never forget. We were in uh, we were in California during this time when he did this to me, but we were um, up on this hill, and you know he like kind of like moved away some dirt and some leaves and was like, this is a two year old weasel track and I was just like I just I I, I want to say that's really neat but I also want to ask like what is the practical application for that I had a similar experience it's I won't like, name the school that? but up in the northwest near no Portland, I'm not bad mouthing his school I'm I just genuinely no, no, I wanted to okay so we found a raccoon track and someone's just oh look the way the leaf is bent here you know it had a liver problem or something oh know? yeah <laughs> so no I think I think tracker school is great on you know uh in in all areas but when it comes to like the data collection and the research collection, I would say research grade collection of inventorying, like clear print, foot morphology and all that stuff to inventory and help biologists and research field analysts. I think they kind of miss the mark because they're more into like this spiritual tracking, which I think is applicable. Yeah. I yeah. really do. I think you like, first of all, Lewis Liebenberg hit the nail on the head when he said the quote, you know, science or the, the what is it? Tracking is the oldest yeah. form of art, science, and language, right? And I really think that is practical. But when it comes to the spiritual tracking stuff, um, 
I think it's just it's just different. It's like inner tracking and healing our whatever trauma and like keeping track of like how we felt when that emotion arise from that person saying that thing. That is what I think like spiritual tracking is to me. But physical tracking with animals and wildlife, you got to get down and like do the nitty gritty toes, digits, you know, mesial webbing, distal webbing. Like you got to get into all that. My Be- class is like University of Florida in Idaho. Yeah, that. Yeah. I, st- I stick to that. Yeah, good. <laughs> so, but it is interesting that. You know, it means, to, again, the connection part and the relationship yeah. part. Everyone draws something. Well, there's all a commonality in it, I think, you know. But everyone has a little bit different aspect on that. Sure. It's a personal journey. But yep. I, I, anyway, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because there's been, obviously, in the last 10 years or so, and, and really Mark Elbrock here in North America yeah. really is the one, I think, that led that. But it really is a science. It and is. So, from 100%. your perspective— why do you think, uh, let's say I'm a biologist out there or I'm concerned about the environment, environmentalist, mm-hmm. whatever. Why is tracking, you think, relevant to that or why is it important? Well, think about it. First of all, it's like a non-invasive approach to cataloging and inventorying animals, right? So if you can figure out, hey, there's, you know, uh, two beavers and three kits living over there and you don't have to destroy their dam to do that, that's great, right? It's, it's less uh, a I'm just trying to blank out a word. Uh, less kind of like assaulting invasive. their life. Yeah, less invasive. Yeah, yeah less... Yeah. Uh, uh, Not intrusive. Right. Messing with their home and their potential food source or whatever it may be. Um, that's like the first thing. But the other thing is just, it's so, to me, it's such a humbling experience when I know there's golden eagles flying around the Yellowstone River. But, you know... When you get to see them flying, it's totally different than when you see them right there on the ground next to you. And I don't know, seeing a track like in front of my face, two feet away while I'm looking at it, it just this sense of wow, like this animal is standing right here and so am I. And maybe that's woo-woo for some people, but I like that connection. But for the biologist, I would say it just helps understand more ecological awareness you know how does the golden eagle living here factor into the river and the quality and the health care of the streams of fish and all that different stuff is there anything tangible that can be extracted from this wildlife tracking research that can then in turn help us do better conservation efforts in ecology so that would be the big one for me and the other thing for biologists is like when you're going out and you're leading like citizen science research things i know a lot of biologists are in charge of doing like field studies and you're bringing the general public out it's so much neater if you explain ecology through the world of tracking because you can talk about bird language for instance that's tracking Really, it is. Tracking um, in real time. In real time, exactly. Like understanding the ebb and the flow of the world around you at any given moment. Um, but yeah, I love that that basic... I, I I'll, Let me say it this way. I had, a teach, I had a student one time named Felicia. And Felicia signed her son up for my tracking class. And just wanted him to be in it but he was young and he was a little bit hesitant he was like 12 or 13 and she was like I'm gonna take this I have no concerns on tracking I don't care and after the first day she came up to me and she was like I did not know that it was this exciting I did not know that it was this interesting I didn't know it was this fun I didn't know that there was these questions that could be asked like this like how you know, all of these things, like what is this hawk eating on the side of the riverbank right here? Why are these these two crawfish claws sitting here? Who did this? Who's responsible? And she just felt when she left that day, 
the millions and millions of moments that she had missed out on when she went on, you know, vacations with family or whatever. And just how many questions now is she going to ask herself about the natural world now that she's got that lens of tracking? You know, it's amazing. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I give an assignment to my students at the end of each semester and, you know, a few questions. They have to write an essay. Um, and part of it is, you know, what did you learn? Or And I get that answer so often, you know, I had no idea. Or I was a guide in a national park last yeah. summer. Now I know what I'm missing or, I, or I'm doing it right now. And mm-hmm. I've been able to incorporate this. Or, you know, I had no idea. I thought I would just be learning, you know, some morphology. And so I, I think it absolutely is twofold. Just like you said, you know, there's there's a sort of excitement that you're able to start connecting all these pieces or these threads. I yeah. love the way you said that, you know, and it just, it's an eye opener. And I tell people and, you know, until you do it, you, you can't really appreciate this, but it just opens up a whole new world. You realize what you've been missing. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's also a hardcore science component. There can be. And, you know, the work I've uh, done and, and previously and being a program manager for a conservation organization, you know, you can't collar every animal, Mm-mm. right? And you can't always collect DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Mark Elbrock uh, with, I think, Panthera now, you know, he's doing yeah. a number of scientific studies on mountain lions, I think other species. Um, but there's been some discoveries made because, you know, you may not be able to find a species, but if you know what to look for, you may find it somewhere else. Exactly. And actually that can spawn research opportunities. Yeah. Um, my professor, uh, Dr. Katie Seaving, University of Florida, in, in bird language, um, she actually pioneered uh, one of her grad students with figuring out that parrots, and uh, not parrots, but parrots, which are titmice and chickadees, okay. they are the guardians of the forest, of like in the entire whole Arctic region. Every continent, uh, literally, except for uh, a couple of small areas in Africa, uh, or, or excuse me, in South America, um, they, all the other birds listen to them. And wow. the reason she did that was because one of her students was paying attention why pishing wasn't working mm. in the Amazon. Mm. And turns out they don't have any titmice and chickadees there. And so, um, anyway, that's a whole nother long story. But because of that, they started doing recordings and they figured out, well, pishing is the same acoustical signature um, as it is uh, what uh, the chickadee call or chickadee dd call. Mm-hmm. And that's why it attracts birds. And it, anyway, launched this whole research. They figured out how to break down these calls and analyze them, figure out which predator, you know, that they're referring to. So, yeah, I, God, I just love hearing you say that, that, you know, there is a scientific aspect to it. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'll just, uh, you said for the biologist and for the, I'm going to say, here's my story for the layman. For the person listening right now, and you're like, I'm not a biologist. How am I going to use tracking in my life? Check this story out. So I, as a kid growing up, loved detective stories. I loved all that stuff. So I think naturally that's why I gravitated towards tracking was because it was fun and you got to solve little mysteries. Well, I had a roommate uh, a long time ago, let's say maybe 2012 or something. Anyway, um, I went to Big Bend. It was gone maybe 10 days. Trash day was like, you know, Tuesday or something like that. I get back, you know, Wednesday or Thursday. So, you know, trash is bad. Trash is been collected, yada, yada, yada. And so I, I'm super passionate. I come back from Big Bend. I'm really inspired. I'm excited. And I go looking for this book, this book that I cannot find anywhere on my shelf. And I started noticing, like, wait a second, Just a couple of other books are gone. Like, what's going on? So I go into my garage and I look up on the shelf and I have this huge box of nature books. And I open that up and there's like nothing in it. 
And I'm like, what? So I immediately, I'm like, hey, you know, to my roommate, I'm like, hey, what's going on here? And he was like, oh, yeah, man. He goes, listen to me. He goes, I, I'm so sorry. He's like, I was trying to mow the front yard, and I pulled your box of books down to get some stuff from behind it. And when I was, like, filling the gasoline and the mower, it spilt all over those books. And I got rid of all of them. He's like, I threw them on the trash. And I was like, well, but wait. I was like, I left. I was like, so the trash should still be there. So I go look in the trash. There's no books. Okay. But here's the funny thing, right? And this is where we're, we're getting into this detective tracker brain was I was like, this garage doesn't smell like gas. You know, all these things you're telling me, none of this is adding up. And, um, and then come to find out we don't even have a lawnmower. <laughs> it's like, what is, what is this story? So I go and I drive down the road to this place called Half Price Books on South Lamar. And uh, I go walk in there and I'm like, hey, I was like, this is going to be really weird. I was like, but I'm looking for a big box of books. They're all nature books. There's a lot of survival books in there. And on the inside cover, it'll say, see hide. And he was like, oh my God. Yeah, we have all those. And I was like, you got to be kidding. He's like, no, look, here they all are. And I was like, oh my God. We'll give you a good deal on it. Yeah, yeah. It's basically what, well, a police officer had to come and, uh, say this is part of a theft you got to give these back to this guy so that's what he had done my roommate stole all these really rare nature books and then you know sold them to half price books and unfortunately but i think i might have bought his story had i not had Mm. that tracker brain Mm. i think i really like all the moments where you have relationships where people are either not being faithful or you have a friend who might be you know, I don't want to say lying, but maybe manipulating or something like that. Tracking gives you those perceptions of those inlets to be like, no, that doesn't make sense. And I never understood that, that, uh, metaphor out on a limb until I started tracking. And so one time Dave said to me, he's like, that's going out on a limb. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, the trunk's strong. You got a good case here, four toes, claws, webs, et cetera. He's like, but now you're just saying nonsense and you're out here on this limb. So I want people to, like CyberTracker does such a great job of, have an open, honest dialogue about what is being viewed. You got to prove your case. You got to prove your case. You're like a little little attorney out there in the field. Um, remember that time we were at Big Bend with the, that specialist and we all got into it about the, what was it? The They the, can get pretty heated. Uh, was it God, that was or uh, uh, case or That was, or that was the one out at Pace Bend Park. Yeah, that was okay. that poop yeah, yeah. of the the okay. frass of uh, the walking stick or whatever. But the one where we were all in Big Ben, I mean, were you there? Maybe you were just helping. I don't think I was at that one. I think I've I've seen a video. Oh, we got into yeah. a heated one about yeah. the Zenita Dove poop versus the Roadrunner oh, poop. Right. Oh my God, it was so. People are listening, probably going, mm. <laughs> "What are you talking about?" <laughs> so, Cyber Tracker International is an organization that evaluates your ability to uh, possess ecological wisdom so animal tracks uh, trailing things such as that and they bring out the best of the best biologists people like casey mcfarland and uh, marcus rainerson it's the top yeah those are the big guys so if you want to put your skills to the test take a cyber tracker test and i will just tell you this even if you have no skills you will learn so much about animal tracking within those two days of signing up for a cyber tracker test just animal behavior yeah everything they they go through everything why is this turtle trying to crawl up the wall well you know about three weeks ago the water in this pond was actually full but it has since dried up and that's why those scratches are on the wall and you're like whoa whoa hold on that makes a lot of sense it's like evidence at face value and that's why i like tracking so much because it gives you a tool belt to analyze and more recently there's this book i can't think of the woman's name right now but the book is called scout mindset 
that book, if you're a tracker, read the Scout Mindset. That's such a great no, I little seen edition. That one. I'm glad you said that. Um, the thing I tell my students, a lot of them is, um, and, and it goes along with this, it's so good to develop, you know, we're in this world of AI, right? Yeah, Artificial of intelligence, uh, which is, and I have an IT background, most of it's based on neural networks or pattern matching. Mm. Tracking is so good at developing pattern matching. Yeah. And, and bird languages as well. And, um, yeah, you just, it, it just helps you in your everyday life. I mean, I know it can sound kind of foo-foo, but it's really not in terms of being able to piece things together um, and just develop that part of your brain. Um, I guess that would be more right brain, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, kind of the, the creative or more abstract. Um, but, again, with the real practical aspect. So what, let me uh, just change subjects a little bit Go here. Um, what about some of the other skills? Because I know you're, you're very adept. I know you do a lot of different things, and, you know, from – doing primitive cooking and, and pottery. Um, I know you're a good plant guy. Where does wilderness survival fit into this? And again, you know, that's big now. Last 10, 15 years, we've had all these wilderness shows on TV and, you know, Man versus Wild or whatever it is, right? And they're fun and all that. And people are really attracted to it, I think, because it just kind of calls something, you know, sort of primitive back in us yeah. or could it fight. But um, in terms of actual, you know, practicality, can you talk a little about, you know, if I were coming to you just off the street or you're talking to a businessman or woman or, or whomever, you know, why would, should they be interested in, in wilderness survival or, or some of the things that you learn uh, when, when you undertake that or take a course? I think wilderness survival is like the pinnacle of self-reliance. You know, if you can just walk out into the woods naked and take care of yourself, like, the amount of freedom that you feel while doing that is so, I don't want to uh, unironically say liberating, but that's what it is. It's, it's, it's very freeing to know I don't need anything. Well, I mean, obviously rocks, water, community, and things like that you need because you're a human being. But to not have to go to the store, to not have to go, you know, try and barter or something along those lines it's just to me it's a sense of hmm freedom i really yeah. just want to say freedom you know because i know you know there's oh you know these impossible food shortages and this that and the other and all these things circulating around the news and it's like that's fear driven stuff to me you know that's that cycle of get into this lower vibrational mindset and rather than going there alleviating that concern at all by practicing tracking, right? Understanding ecology, where do deer go when they're tired and wet and cold and hungry and all that. And then you can build potentially a shelter there or go there. Um, where are the birds getting their water? Where are it's, it's all of it is encased in itself. I feel. And that's what I want to give these kids is a sense of self-reliance at my school. So, you know, cause I'm not a parent. I'm, I'm not a dad. I'm not a mom. I don't have kids. Yeah, let, of my let's own. talk about that. That was the next thing I wanted to ask you. Yeah, is, we'll get back to the survival thing. But on the kids front, yeah, why do you think this is so important for just kids in general? You know, regardless yeah. of the time period, well, but also today. I was going to say that the the alleviating the concern about like this. I mean, you and I, we're we're close in age and I grew up riding my bike around and going 10 20 miles away from home that was just the thing that we did nobody questioned it nobody cared and today kids don't do that so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give kids a sense of self-reliance so that their parents can feel fine 
that's the big thing. It's it's I, when I ask families all the time, I say, why aren't you allowing your kids to go out there? Oh, well, I'm worried. Oh, you're worried. Oh, it's not that your child's worried and your child has confidence. That really upsets me when I teach a child about, hey, these are Texas persimmons, Diospiros texana. They're wonderful little uh, jellies that are they're like chocolate pudding almost. And you can paint with them, and the seeds are cool, and you can do this. And then the kids go to show their parents, like to slap their hand and tell them, don't touch that. You don't know what it is. And they're like, I'm. I learned from Natureversity. Like, what are you saying? Don't touch it. And I find that when the parents discover, whoa, I don't have to be as hyper, you know, watchful of my child because they have a sense of right, wrong, hazards. Oh, no, that's not a dangerous snake. I can recognize all the identifying marks. I can pick that up. It's just a way, once again, this whole conversation started to connect. And so handling frogs and toads and snakes, that's one more layer of connection. It is so primal. It's like pulling a bow back and letting it go the first time or starting a fire. You want to do it. I think we have thousands of years of evolution to capture animals and and just see them and, you know, obviously yeah, eat them. That's, but that's, that's what I want. I want to give kids that sense so that parents have a sense of freedom. That's creating that's, freedom. All that's around. a great way of viewing it. You know, and, and John Young, his work and other people have shown like Sam Bushman. Yeah. And just studies that, um, in fact, my wife and I have been listening to his book. Um, um, sorry. Hunt, gather, parent, I believe is the name. Oh, of it. what a cool name. Yeah. It's, it's really good about, Hunt, you know, gather, parent. yeah, trying to, it's perfect. It, you know, because there's, well, there's this view of, and we've heard it in, uh, not to get into politics, but you know, in recent years about, Tribal mindset, yeah. tribal culture. And, and, of course, you know, there can be a downside of, of that. But there's also, I think it's given a bad name because we know through research now, studies, that, for instance, kids in all these tribal cultures are much more uh, independent in a good way, self-sufficient, and just at peace, relaxed, don't have the anxiety. And I think a lot of it is because of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and... And, and I think that as a society, we need to kind of go back to that and, and relook at that. I highly recommend that book, by the way. Yeah. Uh, if you have a young child or, or one. Hunt, away. gather, parent. Yeah, it, That's it's cool. fantastic. You know uh, what we're talking about is primitive skills and survival. I was reading this book the other day. What was it called? It's like the f- person who first ate like a clam or something like that. It's a book about the firsts, the everything. And in like chapter two or three, it is about like the very first invention. And I, I don't know how accurate this is, but according to this book, it was a mother who could not carry her baby. So it was a sling. It's like the very first thing because she had to alleviate these hands to go do stuff. So I just thought that was so amazing and so when I tell kids stories about like these stone tools and like all this and how cool it is and I was like they're like yeah like first inventions and I was like well was it maybe it was it I wasn't there so I don't really know but I like the thought of hold on let's let's walk this through shall we I'm holding a child can I break two stone tools while holding a child no so what am I going to do first oh I got a little sling put the child back bam and then the kid's like that does kind of make sense. <laughs> so I love telling the kids the origins of the first things. And I, I don't know if that story is true about the baby sling, but if it is, that's really cool. Well, that's a little bit like form follows function, right? So Yes, exactly. The Yeah, the other thing, when you were talking about the survival, I, I, I always think there's two aspects to it. One is, you know, you mentioned, I mean, it is kind of fun. You know, I, I used to do a lot of backpacking and um, don't near as much anymore to young kids, but... You know, when I would go out and do it, even though, you know, I have a modern pack and all these things, if you just know 
some things or you yeah. run across a persimmon, right? Or the other day I like, did a, you know, black walnut, you know, it's like you, you're out there to have fun. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, we used to make, uh, you know, pine needle tea all the time, you yeah. know, which is, you know, vitamin C and Super it's great, good you. you know, if you're cold, yeah, really good for yeah. you. There's just all these little things. But then there's a useful aspect as well. You know, if you something happens, something breaks, and, you know, you don't have parachute cord or whatever. I mean, Grant takes a while. But, you know, if you have to make some cordage or obviously navigation. And so, you know, there's a real useful aspect of being able to get you out of trouble or at least avoid the worst scenarios yeah. a lot of times. And so um, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, and, you know, it's a win-win, right? Mm-hmm. It's fun or, or really a triplicate, you know, it. It's fun. It connects you to nature, and then it could save your life. Literally, yeah. And it's neat, too, because I think kids, you know, they we had this little boy named Zach who came to us one summer, and Zach was not fast. He wasn't, you know, strong. He wasn't, eh, you know, what, what all the kids would be like, yeah, that's the cool kid. He was quiet and reserved and had big, thick, bottle-bottom glasses. And uh, when it came time to do capture the flag and things like that. Um, nobody picked Zach. And, but, you know, Zach was really keen on bird language. So I gave him a copy of John Young's book. I was like, this is what the robin knows. And he w- only came to us for summer. He came to us to visit with his grandparents so he would come to our camps. And I remember he left one summer and he came back the next summer. And boy, howdy, he had digested that book and just practiced so much with these bird languages that he when he came to Texas, he was like, yeah, I could kind of apply that. That Cardinals, you know, I have that in my Pennsylvania town. Oh, the Robin, I have that too. So he's just started going through and like making a checklist of all the birds that were similar. And when we got to go play Thing, uh, uh, Capture the Flag, he, you know, got picked last and wasn't a big deal, but no one could capture their flag because he'd be like, guys, there's like somebody coming on this side. That wow. bird just alarmed. And then it became this fight for who's Zach's got onto what team because they know you weren't going to score a point because Zach's going to tell you, hey, there's two coming down that trail. Send two scouts that way. Send one defender this way. Block here. It was all led by him. So what I'm saying is that survival skills don't just give you like a sense of cool or a sense of like, you know, whatever. It it, it gives you a sense of self-confidence. And that's what I think kids need these days. You know, the reason they're turning to all this TikTok and like how many followers you've got and like it's like who gives a sh- sorry who gives a turd about that stuff um I don't care but like what can you do like what can you help with how can you and when kids see other kids like rubbing sticks together or carving with a knife or throwing sticks or shooting aces you know and at targets and all that suddenly they see like whoa that's cool i want to be able to do that and if that child is in a good place who's good at these skills can kind of take on a little mentoring slash role model approach it gives them even more of a sense of good self-confidence think about you when you became a teacher it felt good to impart wisdom to others it boosted your morale and you carry that morale throughout the rest of your world and in other relationships because you're walking around with a no not like a ego that's inflated but a good sense of pride about who you are and what you know and what you love and you just become this real passionate individual and I like the the quote it sums up really well set yourself on fire with your passion and watch as the world gathers around you to enjoy your light you know that's the best way that I want to give these kids an opportunity and so Zach he wasn't fast. He wasn't strong. He wasn't, but he had a gift. He could recognize patterns, and he could see shifts, and he could see changes. And I said, "That's okay. Like we'll go there." And um, 
What a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah, it was it was definitely changed my life too, just hearing like how his parents told me like he is not afraid anymore at school. Like kids don't pick on him because he has this sense of, well, I don't really care that you think I'm a dork or whatever. He's like, cause uh, I can save myself in the woods. And when it comes time to that might happening to you, we'll see who's asking for whose help here. And that's okay. I'm still going to be humble. I'm still going to be empathetic towards your plight. Uh, Zach was a wonderful, uh, Wow. Young boy who be can, interesting to track him throughout his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would if you're listening to this podcast, Zach, and you know who I'm talking about. I don't remember his last name. I want to say it started with an R, but I don't know that for sure. So yeah, if you're out there, contact me. <laughs> we want to check in with how you're doing. You know, that's uh, again another really good point. Our society, and you know, we hear messaging otherwise, but there is there's such this push to go in certain direction and. You know, whether it become, and again, I'm, I'm not knocking it. We need them in our society. But, you know, whether it's doctor, lawyer, computer programmer, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. And a lot of kids who, you know, either don't have skills in that or just it's not what they want to do feel kind of left out. And, you know, whereas, um, and I, I talked to my wife about this. Um, again, this goes back to that book, Hunt, Gather Parents. She, she brings this up. You know, when you're in smaller culture like that, it does two things. One is it's inclusive. And like you said, they find something they're good at yeah. and it's a needed skill mm-hmm. or, or a task that needs to be done because you're in small groups of people. I mean, even if it's a village with, you know, a few dozen or a hundred people, it's still, you don't have that much labor. So everybody's got to pitch in. And so kids get, you know, a, a sense of self-worth from that, but also they're more likely going to end up at some point doing something that everybody really needs. Yeah. And, you know, so it fulfills a role. You know, an important role, and, and I think that's so key, and, and there's so many spinoffs of that, you know, and yeah. not always, but most people, you know, are good at what they like and like what they're good at, right? Yeah. And so well, what a great example of that uh, that you gave there. And I think it's beyond that, too. Like, I tell myself all the time, like, when I, whatever, you know, uh, can't get this done, I'm, I'm looking for a house right now, and I'm, like, struggling. I'm finding this house hunting process frustrating and I go back and I look at okay I started a nature school well that was hard but I did it I rubbed two sticks together it was hard but I did it like I just keep going back to all these things and going if I can do that like I can do this so I want that for kids too I want that perception to be there in their mind that says I can make friends like that's not that challenging I can you know, whatever, do this dance, I can be a part of this band, I can whatever, because their sense of self-confidence stems from these connections. You know, I think when you build a life upon deep, meaningful connections, no matter what happens, right, depression, anxiety, situations with friends or whatever, being ostracized or whoever doesn't like you, you don't ever fall lower than that foundation, you fall back to that foundation. You go back out and say, well, I'm going to go reconnect my rabbits in my backyard, my birds, and, you know, just find maybe there were some moments where I didn't, I wasn't being true to myself or not listening to the feedback that I was getting. And then you find that. That's what sit spots are for me so much is like meditation. You know, not only just enjoying the birds and, you know, the, the, the wildlife around me, but to really like inwardly reflect about who I am and where I'm going and what it is that I want to be doing in this life and how I want to possess myself and carry myself and how I want to show up in the world. And when we do sit spots with the kids, we ask them, you know, hey, what was something neat you saw in nature? 
And then they're like, oh, you know, this bird or this lizard or whatever it may be. But then we go deeper. Like, what was something, have you ever, did you feel anything while sitting there that you haven't felt in a long time? They're like, yeah, I kind of felt peaceful. Like, I was like, yeah, it's, you don't need TV and stimuli and 24-7, you know, stuff to um, be alive. You know, being alive can just be quiet in the woods with you know, lizard nearby or a bird chirping. And, um, yeah, so it really, for me, it all goes back to self-confidence. I want kids to have self-confidence. So let me ask you this, that last point you made or brought up there, uh, play devil's advocate here for a second. Sure, go ahead. Um, you know, we, we have, I think in recent years, you know, uh, uh, and it goes across many demographics. It's kids, obviously young professionals, older people, this return to nature, you know, yeah. we, we had the age of industrialization, the technological society, et cetera. But that keeps moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, we have 330 million plus people in this country. There's, you know, a lot more coming right. And then there's this kind of movement yeah. towards urbanization and smaller footprint and, you know, not getting into all that. But that, <laughs> Pod that, living. Right, right. And, <laughs> and I, it's not for me, no. but, you know, that's reality. That's, you know, what trying to kind of push people in and, you know, all that stuff, right? So... With that being said, and it's happening, and, and, and we know, we, we've seen the, you know, shifts. I mean, mm-hmm. here in Texas, you know, the small towns way out in West Texas, and, you know, they're getting smaller, actually, right? Yeah. And the cities and central part of states getting bigger, and that's happening other states as well. How, how can we, or how can someone like you, you know, move this forward and people get more involved, given that there's this force, which is kind of, in a sense, creating the opposite, you know, where steel and glass and, you know, pavement and high rises and, you know, uh, hard to have access to land, Yeah, you know, especially in a state like Texas, we don't have much public land. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have and zero course, public land, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's some, you know, but yeah, um, state parks and, you know, uh, that, yeah. a couple of national parks, but they're, you know, big Ben's nine hours away where we are right, right. now. Um, but, but even if you, you know, live, you know, and let's say out west or somewhere national forest, you know, you don't own that land. There's some restrictions. And so buying land is very difficult in many cases now and not possible for a lot of people. So how do you see this as, you know, that we can still, you know, get people out and achieve these things and and create this culture you're talking about and, and community and, and get the intrinsic values of it? Given that there's this push to, you know, and, and you add in all the things you talked about, you know, like uh, TikTok and, you know, whatever's coming down the pike, you know, yeah. all the AI stuff, robots, virtual reality, et cetera. Because, yeah. you know, personally, I've done some work in virtual reality, and I think it can be a great learning tool. But part of it is also it's problematic for me. I mean, given, you know, and I have to watch my kids. I, I don't want them on screens or yeah. putting the goggles on or what. I want them on the real deal. So mm-hmm. what do you do you have any answers for that or, or even just comments or I think we, I I tell parents at my school all the time, I say, listen, your kid is never going to remember their best day on an Xbox, but they will remember the day that I taught them to rub two sticks together. So I want to say that there's nothing that is going to replace the tangible connection of holding a snake, looking at animal tracks on the earth, like right there, you know this animal walked right here. That's amazing to me. So I think as much as they want to try to push this, you know, digital world, I think you're going to get resistance naturally because that's not who we are. We don't have, you know, thousands of years of evolutionary DNA with tech, but we do with nature, you know, and I think that no matter, look at it like this. The people 
who are pushing that kind of stuff so hard, they're the resistance they're getting is like I'll give you a great example. There's an organization here in Austin. Uh, it's called Exit and Build. Right, that is a great example. They are wanting you to alleviate yourself from the concern and the constraints of uh, big ag, big pharma, government, all of that stuff. It's run by John Bush um, and an amazing group of people over there, Rebecca. And so, yeah, look, ch- check out Exit and Build if you're really interested in this stuff and you're like, how is there a, is there a practical application measure to what it is that they're talking about on this podcast? Yes, the, the Exit and Build people and what they're getting into is how to do gardening on a low scale thing. And so what I mean is like, if you're a person who's like, I live in the downtown big city, they start with step one. How do you get out of there? Where are you going? Where are you, What do you want to be a part of an intentional community? Do you want to start your own community? They go and hold your hand like through the process of exiting and building your own thing. Um, so just know that as much push as there is to digitize us, there is so much more push from people like Lee, you know, sitting across from me and myself who are out there making sure that people don't lose sight of what got us here, which is the natural world and these connections and pure water to drink and swim in and, you know, birds to sit in the trees and, and do all that. So, yeah, I don't I I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to doom and gloom it. I don't want to perceive that the digitalized world is going to one day usurp you know our connection to nature i don't think that's going to happen i think i think we're just too much of a wild creature for that i, I really do I, I love you saying that and you're a good example at because you know you you know your way around high tech but you're able to still do these things and you know it brings up something i think we forget about you were talking about the parents earlier and yeah. you know having this kind of anxiety and fear and um, you know, I, I've seen that in my own family as well, sure. you know, about when, you know, 70 years ago, you wouldn't have thought anything about your kid going out and running around for a few hours or even when I was a kid, you know, it's like yeah. we went to the local, you know, little mountain over here and had our little fort, you know, and made a little fire, cook hot dogs, you know, and my mom didn't even think anything about it. Right. She yeah. didn't know where we were, I know. you know, as long as we came home, it That's was okay. Right. right? Or called and checked yeah, in. She was glad we left actually, I think a lot of times, but anyway, um, you know, I think one of the things we forget about, though, is that, and, and of course, at some point, every, you know, country was like this, but we were founded by pioneers. Yeah. And of course, before we were here, you know, indigenous people mm-hmm. were here. And, but even the settlers, you you know, you read, you know, my father-in-law is talking about it. Um, um, he's from Costa Rica, but his favorite books were Little House on the Prairie and how arduous it was and going through Wisconsin winters. And so we have this in us. And I yeah. think it's always been part of the American ethos. You know, it certainly was Native Americans and the early settlers here. And, you know, whereas, and I lived in Europe for quite a few years, and, you know, I have some beautiful places over there, but that's been very cultured and refined and manicured, maybe like Eastern Europe's a little bit different, a little yeah. wilder there, but, you know, for hundreds of years. And so, you know, thank God that we do still have a lot of wilderness here in the West. Um, you know, it may not be much that's totally untouched, but still we have some amazing places. And I do think it's in our DNA. And so I am hopeful as well. It's why I do what I do, mm-hmm. that we don't ever lose that. And uh, because I think it's part of, you know, Americana. And unfortunately, it's not talked about enough, you know, yeah. in the lexicon. But I think that's beginning to come back. I think that's why there's so much interest in a lot of these shows. And so I'm really glad to hear you say that. So, 
Um, I just uh, want to let everybody know uh, before we wrap up here. Mm-hmm. Can you tell a little more about NatureVersity, the specific yeah. programs? Um, sure. You know when you run them, and I, I know they're they're Austin based, but also people are just interested because you know you you post stuff online and you have a big online presence, mm-hmm. and how they can find out more about you. You have a website, so if you could just uh, kind of delve into that a little bit. Yeah. So the school's name is NatureVersity Outdoor School. <clears throat> you can find us at natureversity.org. That's our website. What a cool name, by the way. Love that. I laughed because people, I never went to college. I graduated high school and I immediately like ran to the woods and people would ask me when I would go show up to do these like, you know, lessons and teach park biologists and stuff, animal tracking. They'd be like, where'd you go to school? And I'd be like, university of nature. And I just started smashing those words together and saying natureversity. And it was kind of like a joke at first, but when I actually started the school, I had to call it something. And I was like, I'm just going to call it natureversity. You know what? I, I got to hang out with that guy, um, who basically did all Richard Louvre, who did all the nature deficit disorder. Oh, you, you guys spent dis- some time with yeah, him. Yeah. I got to oh, hang wow. out with him and he told me, he's like, you know, he's like natureversity. He's like, it's the greatest name for a, a school ever. He's Fantastic. Like, when re- was that? When did you meet with him? Uh, he was at the Thinkery. He did a big event at the Thinkery and I got tickets. I brought all my teachers just to hear him talk and we got to hang out after the presentation together for and a little Richard while. And Richard Lurov is the author of Last, Ch- Last Child, Child in the, in the Woods. Woods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vitamin N. Bunch of other and great coin, books. Yeah, Nature Deficit Disorder. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, hearing him say, like, that's the coolest nature school name I've ever heard. I was like, oh, okay, I think I made it in life. Like, I could die tomorrow and say I lived a good life because this guy I look up too much or so much said, you know, I love your name of your school. So yeah, that's how it came to be. Um, I really want people to know that we have a lot of summer camps. We have a lot of after school program. I'm sorry, uh, weekend classes. We have homeschool programs. We pretty much have everything in person, but if you are uh, far and away and listening to this and you would like to do something with us, we do have this thing. It's called the bushcraftadventureclub.com. You can go there and check us out there. That's all of what Mr. Chris does at Natureversity, just presented to children in an online content. It's really neat. It's kind of like Boy Scouts mixed with Girl Scouts, mixed with karate, mixed with... Um, I don't know what else. Like, um, you're making me want to be a kid again. Yeah, wow. but you. So you start out as what's called an aspirant, and when you sign up, you get a little package in the mail. It's got a white bandana. You wear your white bandana. It's got ten missions, so you get a mission every week. And then once you're done and you sign off on it and everything's good, you rank up to the yellow belt. Right now, you're an initiate. So it just goes through the you know yellow or white all the way to black belt. It's the highest rank. Um, it takes about two years to do it all. It's one mission per week. And some of them are very difficult when you get up into the red belt and the brown belt. They get difficult. This sounds like Tom Brown kind of task. Yeah, they are. They're like, you know, build a fort, sleep in it one night, uh, make an entire meal out of nature, build a bow and arrow, all of the missions. But if you go to bushcraftadventureclub.com, uh, you can check all that out. And then the other thing is for if you're here and you're listening to this and you're an adult and you want to do some adult stuff with us in person, we have an organization called the Lumber Society. And that is down off of Riverside near 35 at a place called the Buzz Mill Beer and Bar Garden or Bar and Coffee Shop, sorry. (laughs) And uh, it's just a lot of fun. I always tell people who want to know more about it, they say, what is it exactly? I say, listen, if you never got a chance to do Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts as a kid, it's that mixed with beer. 
That's how cool it is. So we're doing all the survival skills, but we're doing it while enjoying some beverages. We're not getting drunk or plastered, but we are having some adult fun time. Uh, leave the kids at home because this is 21 and up. So, Well, and I can vouch. I've been down there and, and known Chris for a number of years. He's a fantastic teacher. And uh, thank you. Very hands on. Great with kids. And, you know, maybe the way to finish this, too, is that um, when, when I got into all this before and I was working in the high tech world and I, I worked with some really good people, you know, but there's just something about the office setting and, you know, because you got your head stuck in a screen or some deadline. It was hard to form good relationships. And, of course, when you left, uh, you either just wanted to get away totally and yeah. you had a couple of pints. Um, sure. Or, you know, there was this habit of continuing to talk shop. And um, when I was in Europe, I went, it actually wasn't a, a outdoor skills, but I took a week off and, and went to a, a camp sort of thing. It was actually a um, physical fitness deal. And I just noticed the quality of conversation change. And within about a week, um, I just got to know people that, and, and feel like I had a good relationship with them. And I, that, that I knew better than my friends I'd known for several years when I was living in London. And, and then a few years later, I went to, and, and I know you, you were down there for a while too, Sam Kaufman down in San Antonio. Yeah, Human I went Path. To one of, yeah, Human mm-hmm. Path. And I um, spent, I had a buddy, and I'd gone through this already, but he was interested. So we went down there and did a five-day thing. And just, you know, you're sitting here, you're carving a piece of wood or you're making fire or whatever. The, the practice itself is meditative. Oh, yeah. But you just, you form a relationship. You just kind of have these side conversations. It may be something very different walk of life for yeah. you, very different views, politically, oh, whatever. Yeah. But you actually form a bond. It's very tribal, but mm-hmm. in a good way. And so I just say that because Chris is teaching these schools and even on the, you know, when he's down there on the Thursday nights, Lumber Society, you get a certain amount of that. You start talking yeah. to the person next to you. And I think above all the relationship aspect, I, I was a big fan of, of uh, Into the Wild, the book of the movie. And the kid. Oh, yeah. And, and I know, you know, he was a little bit eccentric and had some issues. But I think that's what he was after. And, yeah. and ultimately, that's really what, you know, his last thoughts he penned. Uh, before he died was, you know, it was about relationship. Right. You know, happiness is only real when shared. That's right. And so I I think if you're out there listening, wondering about this, the skills are great. It's really fun. They're practical. There's a scientific aspect. But above all, you know, it's one of the best ways to be in relationship with other people, make new friends, et cetera. And so I I can't recommend uh, Chris's organization more highly. And if you get a chance, you're in Austin area, come visit or, like I said, look him up online. So thank you very much uh, for dropping in. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.